Through the fathomless steps of space swims the star turtle, the great Atuan. And on its back are four nerds trying to figure out just what it is that makes their Terry Pratchett's work both timely and timeless. So grease your hair, attune to the cosmic backbeat, and join us on our journey through soul music and the complete discography. Tonight, we are talking about the 16th book in the Discworld series, Soul Music, first published in 1995. Um, interestingly, the copyright has again changed. Uh, last book, it was copyright Dunn Manifestin, and now it's just copyright Terry and Lynn Pratchett, uh, which is an interesting change. And I, I wonder if they experimented with, an L- with a, um, like a limited liability, whatever, LLP or whatever, and LLC. then just decided to... L- I don't know anything. I don't know. Um, I don't know law. That's something, something with letters. They did a business at it. And that voice that you just heard is our guest for tonight. Uh, Dylan, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Dylan. I do science for the most part and occasionally get roped into podcasts, which I don't object to at all. But like, I have no right to be here. I mean, really none of us do, but... We're just hoping that nobody notices. And considering the fact this is going to be coming out in late March, uh, despite being a grad student, is there anything you need to pitch? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I don't know what I'm going to do next week. March, God only knows. So I'm Aaron and I play the drums. I can't do the Ringo voice. I'm Anna, an intern in the High Energy Magic Building. I am Justin, owner of the second highest score in Barbarian Invaders. I am Dylan, and I have seen what sound looks like. Or, well, what what it would look like if your ears were eyes. Soul music starts off with the introduction of a new recurring character, Susan, Mort, and Isabel's daughter, who you may remember from Mort, uh, the eponymous Mort, and thus Death's granddaughter. Both Mort and Isabel died in a carriage accident off-screen, for now, and Susan is 16 and at boarding school. In addition to being very intelligent and having a quite logical mind, she has a, some odd traits, such as an ability to turn invisible when she doesn't want to be noticed or bothered or wants to read a book in class. Uh, we're also introduced to Imp Yselen, I'm mangling that Welsh probably, uh, a musician who has just arrived in Ankh-Morpark Park to seek fame and fortune, harp in tow. Death, meanwhile, has been doing some thinking about what it is all about, and decides that it's time to go find out. He heads off into the world, leaving his duties behind. In Ankh-Morpork, Imp's dreams are quickly squashed as he finds out about the Musicians Guild, its steep entry fee, and the dire consequences if it catches you performing without a license. At the Guild Hall, he meets two other disillusioned musicians, the troll drummer named Elias, and the dwarf horn player, Glod Glodson. The three head to a strange musical instrument store after Lias accidentally sits on Imp's harp, and Imp finds a very odd new instrument, a guitar made of solid wood that seems to bond Imp instantly, and they officially form a band. With Death continuing on his soul-searching quest and joining the Clatchian Foreign Legion, Susan reluctantly follows the death of Rats and his new Corvid friend, Quoth, to Death's domain, since it seems that while he is away, the universe has sort of mushed his duties onto her 
previous visits to see her grandfather start returning to her as she takes up the duty. Her path and imps collide when she shows up in the mended drum to collect his soul. He doesn't die on schedule, however, and this time it isn't the main character interacting with the plot. The guitar takes over, filling his lifetimer with music once the sand runs out. And so, music with rocks in it is unleashed upon the world. The three musicians have the fortune, or rather extreme misfortune, of encountering CMOT Dibbler, who knows a good idea when he sees one and starts planning concerts, a tour, and a pre-music festival. The wizards, being more attuned than your average bear to magic and weird occurrences and other, you know, cross-dimensional incursions, catch music with rocks in fever real hard. We're treated to the Dean embracing a teen rocker phase, the librarian having a brief career as a keyboardist for the band, and a variety of other wizard shenanigans. Ridicule's concerned, since the last time something like this happened, the creatures from the dungeon dimensions attempted to invade, asterisk see moving pictures, and seeks the aid of Ponder Stibbons and the other graduate student residents of the High Energy Magic Building. And we meet the newly forged baby supercomputer Hex, Although I don't think it's named Hex at this point. Um, But that'll come back later too. Susan, meanwhile, is getting in touch with her past and experiencing nonlinear time as an aspect of death. She speaks with death in the past and finds out more about her history, death's relationship with humanity, the fate of her parents, and why death wasn't able to step in and save them. Death himself in the current timeline moves on from the Clatchian Legion to just getting very drunk and then falling in with the beggars of Ankh-Morpork, Park, but still doesn't, well, find the, any of the answers he's looking for. After another riotous show at the drum, the band heads out on tour to Querm, Sudopolis, and Solat. Each of these performances is wilder than the last, and they're run out of town by the watch of each. As they go, their musical style evolves. Asphalt, the troll roadie, rakes in the cash on Dibbler's behalf, and Imp, now known as Buddy, becomes more and more tired and non-responsive seeming to only come alive when he's on stage. Susan continues to check in on Buddy and um, thwarts several assassination attempts, which spooks him as he's the only one who can see her. The band finally returned to Angmorpork at the big festival. By this point, they've done a bit of math and realized that Dibbler's screwing them royally or screwing them out of royalties, so they plan to play the concert and then run out of town with the cash. Buddy's bandsmates have a surprise for him first, though. They paid an artisan to repair Buddy's harp. Buddy plays it for the crowd, showing his true magical talent and causing a falling out briefly with the guitar before launching into music with Roxanne after Buddy kind of pulls a warlock and pledges his soul. As soon as the concert is finished, the group hop in their carriage and head out of the city at top speed, pursued by the Musicians Guild and by Susan. Meanwhile, Death's servant, Albert, who you may remember as the first Arch-Chancellor of Unseen University, has been growing increasingly dissatisfied by Susan's performance of the duty. He sets out to track down Death, going from the Clatchian Legion to the drum where he's incapacitated. Now that they're in Ankh-Morpork, though, the Death of Rats is able to track down Death, who leaves the group of beggars to tend to Albert. Because his lifetimer has been smashed and the few remaining grains of his life are falling onto the disgusting Ankh-Morpork streets. In order to follow everyone out of the city, Death needs a horse, and he finds a horse of a sort at Unseen University, where the librarian has constructed a motorcycle. He dons the Dean's leather robes, hops aboard, and takes off as only an anthropomorphic personification can. Susan catches up to Buddy, and the band, just as disaster strikes, they hit a curve too fast, Dead Man's Curve, 
and their carriage slides off the road. Susan pulls them up from the wreck, seemingly safe and sound, but they begin to vanish as fate itself catches up to them. Death appears, however, to set things right. He breaks his scythe and uses a shard of the blade as a pick to play the guitar, stopping the music, playing the zero chord, so that Buddy can restart it and the beat of the universe. Everything settles back into place in the new reality. Things reset. As Buddy, now Imp once again, starts work at the local fish and chips shop near the school. The band disappears to their other jobs. Susan goes back to school and Death goes back to work. And that's that's a book. There's a lot of stuff. Every once in a while, Terry is really like transparent with what he's like parodying. I think at one point he literally calls it out like Impicalen or something like that. Again, not Welsh. Literally just translates to Bud of Holly. And then yep. he changes his name to Buddy Holly. And then about halfway through the book, he literally refers to the end and that carriage crash where they're all supposed to die as the day the music dies. It's very explicit what he's doing. And I appreciate that. Sometimes sometimes hiding behind subtlety is just it's for the weak. Oh yeah, this has about all the subtlety as moving pictures did in any yeah. everything it's referencing. Yeah. It, the, the subtlety in this case, in, in case our listeners did not listen to our moving pictures episode, is the force of 10,000 tons of TNT. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's it really feels like a, a companion book to moving pictures more than more than a companion book to most of the other death books. Oh, there's a lot of good death content. There is some really good death content. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot that of really said, good death content. The uh. The overall theme is what if a modern media thing from real world showed up in Discworld and then we just canceled it out at the end of the book and didn't bring it up again. Yeah, so it's it's kind of moving pictures 2.0. Yeah. And I think it does it really really well. Like it also has a it has a stronger pun game than moving pictures. Gosh, yeah. I it's I think I think I'll say that like also this is like it has a much stronger spine than moving pictures did. Um, whereas like moving pictures stuff sort of just happened to people. I think this one, like there's a lot of causality to it. Yeah. It flows. Um, and we also have like a very good emotional core with Susan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like both Susan and the band have a bit more, a bit more meat to them than Victor and the moving picture squad. Um, but I just realized that Dibbler is a main hand in both yeah, of these and books. Actually, I want to talk about that a little bit later because um, I feel like at this point, well, I mean, I guess never mind. I'll just bring it up now. I, I feel like at this point, uh, Dibbler is kind of Vitinari's canary. Like anytime <laughs> Dibbler gets too into something, Vitinari is like, hmm. I'm gonna have oh, to no. watch this. I'm using this as a uh, as a jumping off point to get to my favorite uh, footnote <laughs> in the book. I just need to find it real quick. There it is. This might be one of my favorite things Terry's written because every once in a while there's those like the ones with like five footnotes attached to each other. No, no, uh, it's it's the joke structure. I love a joke that builds up to a solid punchline, but requires you to connect the dots on your own. Like I'm not going to tell you the punchline. You're going to tell you the punchline in like half a second after I do. Yeah, that's yeah. the uh, 
Rats had featured largely in the history of Ankh-Morpork. Shortly before the partition came to power, there was a terrible plague of rats. The city council countered it by offering 20 pence for every rat tail. This did, for a week or two, reduce the number of rats, and then people were suddenly queuing up with tails. The treasury was being drained, and no one seemed to be doing much work. And there still seemed to be a lot of rats around. Lord Vetinari had listened carefully while the problem was explained, and had solved the thing with one memorable phrase which said a lot about him, about the folly of bounty offers, and about the natural instinct of Ankh-Morporkians in any situation involving money. Tax the rat farmers. <laughs> and the funny thing is, it's a real thing that happened in multiple places, including in India with cobra farms. Uh, and not only that, but in, in, in the particular incident in India, they they started taxing the cobra farms and then the farms just released all of the cobras and then they had a worse problem with cobras than they had at the beginning. <laughs> oh no. Uh, the, this, this book also has a really strong footnote game. Yeah. Really good. Like there's a couple of uh, Red Cully learning about science that come in. Oh, oh. The idea of... On- the uh, the water from the Ankh has to be healthy because how could it not be healthy? Look yeah. how many things live in it. <laughs> and the fish oh, of, yeah. more pork, of, of the Ankh that uh, were a, a cross between what sounded like a Roomba and a crab um, uh, and would explode <laughs> if they came in contact with fresh water. Uh, it's technically sort of a real thing. If you have a high enough salt content inside the cell and it gets into fresh water, then all the salt tries to like push out through osmotic pressure and you can just rupture the cell if you got enough cells you got an exploding fish i don't know how biology works i do physics yeah and physics is just sort of like if you have x number of you know amount of potential energy then you know theoretically an explosion could happen and we're done physics always starts off on a baseline of what happens with one of them well if you got a bunch of them together that probably happens a bunch of times we'll correct we'll we'll add correction terms Consider a round, frictionless cow. Hey, the spherical cow in a frictionless vacuum is a solid approximation for most problems. <laughs> uh, we've got Death. We've got Susan. We've got Buddy Holly, our, our imp. We've got Glaude and Cliff. And we've got CMOT Dibbler. And then we've got a bunch of minor characters that I don't think we need to really go through. We've got oh, Ponder yeah. Stibbons. No, you're right. Most of yeah, we've right. got we the got wizards. A, 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 we, he, yes, we've also got the Arc heard. Chancellor, but hey, whatever. We've got Ponder <laughs> Stibbons. And so we're, we're getting the wizards in basically every book mm-hmm. now, practically. And and it's great because we get like solid wizard content and wizard shenanigans without them being the focus. Which, which I think, is where mm-hmm. they need to be. Yeah, yeah. It, it works a lot better. For them, they're they're better on the sidelines. Yeah, I, th- I like this is this this sort of like I think like crystallized them into like what I liked about the wizards, but they're like turned up to eleven here. It's what I remember about the wizards. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I know you guys have brought it up a thousand times, but it's weird to hear like all the old books and see the original drafts. Actually, this is this is another moment I really love from this book is when Susan goes back and talks to Death. She talks to Mort Death. Right. 
I don't know if I'm the only one who sits in this boat, but there's a certain amount of like credit I do not pay artists who have been working for a long time where you feel like characters sort of evolve. They take on a life of their own. They, you know, it's not a conscious choice. But then watching Terry go back and specifically write death in the way that he originally wrote death to have that conversation mm-hmm. with Susan and then go back to writing modern death for the rest of the book. Boyo's got chops, man. He knows what he's doing. She ac- she actually sees the duel between Morton and Death. I forgot that yeah. that happens. So I guess that he, I guess maybe the answer at the end of Mort is that Death saw Susan and needed her to exist. Yeah. So he couldn't kill Mort. I Interesting. I kind of question how human that was, though, because like. There's absolutely that reading that makes a lot of sense of just not wanting to tangle up time. But there's some little bit where I think he saw her because his reaction is amusement. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily like, oh, I've got to I've got to do this. Otherwise, you know, I can't ruin the timeline. It's like he sees her immediately clicks to who she is and then just goes, oh, no, I got to see how that plays out. Yeah, that's that's what we're going with now. Or alternatively, like, oh, I see that I don't kill Mort. Okay. Yeah. Which is like, again, it's the same thing as the the veterinary footnote, where I think one of Terry's talents is knowing when to put faith in the reader, where Mm -hmm. you can just like, I don't have to deliver the punchline. I don't have to tell you why he did a thing. There's a couple of reasons. It doesn't matter which one. All of them are going to read well in your head. Mm -hmm. So the thing that I wanted, that Mm -hmm. I, I sort of, came out of it not entirely clear still on was what exactly death was trying to forget or was he just trying to learn how to forget because he was tired of remembering everything i felt like it was kind of snowballed out from mort and isabel's death yeah that and and possibly also spiraling out from them rejecting him when mm. susan was oh, young okay. There's there's a weird middle ground to it of like, does he need to forget that it happened or is it painful because he always knows it's going? We get a lot of work done in terms of like death's nonlinear memory. He remembers mm-hmm. things that haven't happened yet. Mm-hmm. So he's sitting there knowing it's about to happen and just kind of going, well, I mean, this is how it plays out. Mm-hmm. Just got to let it go. But honestly, this is to me, this was the weakest part of this book is it's something that we saw in a lot of kind of the earlier books where he is just satirizing a thing without necessarily like weaving it into the book itself. He starts off with the line, like this is a story about memory. No, it isn't. Like if you, if you read that book without that line, (laughs) there is nothing that really pushes me to say, well, this was a, this was a story about remembering stuff or how memory affects what you're, like none of the band is functioning based on like things they had done previously. It's all kind of in like dogged pursuit of fame and fortune. Susan is, I mean, technically remembering how to be deaf, but also it's indistinguishable from learning. So I feel like that's kind of grasping at straws. The wizards don't know what in hell is going on and it's glorious. They remember nothing. They learn nothing. Yeah. They just do stuff. It's perfect. <laughs> I mean, I wonder how much that was Terry talking to us, though. Yeah. Should we talk about the Clatchian Foreign Legion, which does? Yeah. What the hell? What the hell is that? I know it's a reference to something, but it's a reference to something that I don't know what the hell is going on. And there's so much page time devoted to it. Yeah. So the French Foreign Legion is a 
service branch of the French army that took in foreign volunteers. If you've watched Casablanca, um, for example, and, they reference it there. Yeah. Um, and, and what it's supposed to be is that in the middle of the 20th century, there was a fictional trope of joining the French foreign legion to escape your crimes. Like some per like what, what it would be is like somebody in a far off city would kill somebody and join the French foreign legion. So they don't yeah. get prosecuted. My, uh, my rough understanding of it entirely through its existence as a trope. I know nothing of the real foreign legion mm-hmm. is basically yeah. you serve X amount of time and now you're officially a French citizen. So what you could do was yeah. like show up, sign up under a fake name, join the French foreign legion, serve your time. And then congratulations, you're a Frenchman. Go live yeah. your, go live your life, Pierre. The only French name I could think of. The word of God <laughs> here, uh, an actual quote from Terry, uh, just so we don't get a zillion postings about cartoon films and comics and movies that soul music has been copied from the whole Clatchian foreign legion, bit has its roots in Beau Jest, which is the foreign legion movie, uh, from the 1930s. It must be one of the most parodied, echoed, and copied movies of all time. It was so influential that it is probably where most people's ideas of the French Foreign Legion actually originate. There you go. Cool. So so I have a bit of a theory here on what death wants to forget. Is I'm wondering if maybe what death wants to forget is the future. Maybe. I think so. Because like, that's the bit that makes it hurt, right? Is It always comes back to even with Susan's story is like, she knows imp is supposed to die. And then she knows that he is dead. And then she, she's just consistently trying to fix it. And all of the pain of it comes from knowing how it's supposed to be. So I'm realizing, and we, I might have to shift this around. Um, I didn't do the important thing with the guest. Dylan, what was your first experience with, uh, with Discworld? So sort of roundabout. I, uh, as you may have guessed from the references to science and physics, was a math nerd in high school. Uh, that was the bit of school that made sense to me. You know, it's numbers, it's letters. You arrange them according to the rules. Just do the thing. It's fine. Um, English was uh, stupid. I didn't like it. I didn't get it. Like somebody tried to explain symbolism to me once. Didn't fit. Um, and then in grade 11, I had a English teacher by the name of Paul Lonky, And he did a good job. Like he was, he was the guy who eventually went like, no, we're not trying to teach you to read symbolism so that you'll understand Macbeth. We're trying to teach you to read subtext so that when an ad or like a politician tries to lie to you or use rhetoric to manipulate you, you will see what they're doing. Oh, you went to school in Canada, right? Yeah. Well, even then he was like the only teacher I had that could put it in those terms. Everyone else was very like, in the literature end of it. So like, no, the reason was so that you knew like Lady Macbeth, blood on her hands, washing her hands. Like she's, no, that's not why you teach someone Shakespeare. You teach someone Shakespeare is like running the most difficult race you can so that you'll learn to understand political ads, which are very on the nose, relatively speaking. But if you can piece together what, what Shakespeare was saying throughout Hamlet, then I know you're definitely going to be okay when, we hit the ads. So as part of that, he kind of recognized that I was not good at English. Uh, so he gave me good omens as my sort of individual study book for the report we had to do at the end of the year. And that, that was sort of my, uh, my entry point was reading that going like, 
oh, this is saying things and also is funny and like enjoyable to read. Because you always have that sort of separation throughout high school between modern literature, like modern books and that concept of literature and books that are saying something that is not words on page. I got through that one. And then I think same as everybody else, you wind up just going like, where am I supposed to start? And someone goes, I don't know if I can pick something. I think I started on Mort. I want to say Mort. That's a good, yeah. that's a good starting place. But I don't know. That that was it. Is I read yeah. that and then I think I read basically most of them. I know there are some holes in it, but it was one of those things where I was picking them at random. So the only way I could possibly know which ones I hadn't read yet was to go to the bookshelf with a list in hand and start crossing things off. And I just wasn't going to do that. Very lazy. <laughs> yeah, for a solid decade for me, it was just like, what does the library have? Mm -hmm. That's the thing that really threw me off was I started tutoring a kid and we would meet at the library. So I started borrowing books from the library instead of just buying them. And now I don't know what I've read at all because they're not even on my shelf. <laughs> so, Justin, what what are some of your impressions of this book? Just broadly. Um, I, I think it's I, I, it's a really enjoyable one. Like like I said earlier, I think this is a refined concept or, or refined sort of second take on popular media invades the disc and starts to affect reality around it. Like it is, it's moving pictures 2.0, um, but with a stronger cast and without um, whatever the fuck that dog is. Gaspode. <laughs> Gaspode, the wonder dog. It's with a much more enjoyable cast. As, as uh, we all know, I am a big death fan. We're going to get to this point, but there there is a particular point in the climax of this book where it listen it's like it's it's like it's trying no what it is is it is trying to jump the shark it is the exact like same vibes as watching Fonzie jump a shark except it works yeah yeah <laughs> the, the moment where death gets on the motorcycle and is like hand over the leather robes it has to look it right specifically does the terminator <laughs> it's so <laughs> wearing a yeah. wearing a jacket it's so good to rune. god yeah no the, it, it's like the entire book was just building up for this dumb like set piece except like you know except for like the last 15 years of filmmaking where that entire thing is just a like can't pull it off. Terry's just like, here, you get death on a motorcycle with leather robes. Yeah, it's gonna be good and you're gonna love it. Suck it. So nerd. I saw Aaron's <laughs> copy, but for anyone who may have read an ebook or done an audiobook, uh the cover is Death on the Motorcycle, and it is specifically the cover of Bad Out of Hell by Meatloaf. Right. There's so many meatloaf references <laughs> like, in this book. I feel like that it's not even like they specifically wanted death on a motorcycle they wanted to do a bat out of hell and they were like well shit i guess i gotta get death on a motorcycle at some point so that i can put death on a motorcycle just yeah it's so much work for what should be no payoff but it works so well <laughs> especially since he crashes it it's so good does he crash it or does it just incinerate by sheer force of death is driving it faster than it's supposed to go? It dies and then he rides the morphic resonance of a motorcycle. It's it's the predecessor yeah. to Crowley's car at the end yeah. of Good Omens. Yeah. 
it has it has strong Crowley energy. I actually felt like this whole book had really strong mm. Good Omens energy in a couple places. That we have we have the motorcycle, which feels a lot like Crowley's car. You have death drinking in a bar next to the coin operated game, right? That we have the the hangers on band who keep changing <laughs> their name. Um, and it really felt like the, the four bikers who just like decided to glom onto the horsemen of the apocalypse and kept changing their names, etc. Who were so sad they left out of the TV show. Yeah. 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 With so many minutes, I guess. Yeah. There's only so much time in the yep. day. I, I felt like this was, this has some really strong, um, good omens mm. energy. It really did. Uh, and it, it's, it's such a... F- fast-paced book like it's he's reeling off puns faster than you can catch them and references and then just throwing some plot to stick it together Uh, and it goes fast it's funny because the part of it that i felt like was the weakest actually was the pacing that it alternates between the really fast-paced musician chunks a lot of the Susan chunks are much slower. Like there's the very slow scenes where she she's in Death's house, etc. And I'm not sure that the balance between those worked particularly well. At least for me, it it, it felt kind of jarring. I, I mean, I really love a lot of the Susan scenes where you know she's exploring the house and you know remembering things and kind of getting in touch with her childhood. Um, but at the same time, it felt like kind of like the ret- record scratch every time we got into one of those after the like page turning pace of the musician bits. I would like to go to bat for that as an intentional yeah, artistic choice. Okay. Um, because so we get, if you miss one line, you, you, the the death of Morton Isabel is not lingered on for the first two thirds of that book at all. It is, it's basically like one paragraph. I think part of that is that like it's something that is unresolved for both death and Susan, and I think it's this thing that is hanging over the like all of Susan's scenes. It's also something that's not defined until two-thirds of the way through the book. Like, they don't explicitly say who was in the carriage or what happened. We know a carriage went over, it exploded, whoever was inside died, death is sad, smash cut to Susan. And there's a and there's a mirroring between the two scenes, because that's exactly what happens to the musician's it's the same, carriage. It's the same curve. Too. Yeah. Yeah, same curve, same scene. Once I had done my, like, marathon read through it was like okay i get that now because it's it's it feels like normally a thing that a character would dwell on for a lot of their book but i think that's a it's a really interesting choice of like have it not just be a thing that is like unresolved but it's like doing that through just like not referencing it in the narrative of the book overall i if I, I, it's not another book that we re- that we've all read or that three of us have read recently. Uh, deals with that in a much more meta way, mm-hmm. which is Harrow the Ninth. Yeah, 
also read it fairly yeah. recently, so <laughs> we're all on the same page. <laughs> okay, excellent. Okay, okay, uh, we're, we're, good, we're in good company here. I don't so have to this is where, this. like, the the payoff of that whole thing is was the button for me. Like, that was, that was the moment where everything really fell into place. But it's kind of interesting in that, like, it, I'll we'll I'll get into it fully later. Death and Susan are specifically dealing with that at opposite ends. Mm-hmm. It does feel like something that a character yeah. should dwell on the entire time. You would expect the daughter to dwell on it. He doesn't. The father-in-law slash dad dwells on it the entire book. The daughter specifically doesn't address it or deal with it or think about it until like the third last page. And also, like Susan's behavior in the in the beginning scenes in the school feels very much to me like you know just with a little bit of of magic, a kid dealing a, a style of kid dealing with the death of a parent, mm-hmm. like hiding and ignoring and you know not doing school work and I that's magically applying to reality what trauma depression and isolation yeah. feels like yeah and that that really hit home for me again like i was i was rereading this and i feel like anyone who like is reading this at you know roughly our age is going to be you know kind of savvy enough to clue into what happened immediately but i know that i read this the first time when i was like 18 or 20 and like i said i was not I was an avid reader in terms of sheer consumption, but I wasn't thinking that much as I went through stuff. There's a reason that a lot of the things I liked when I was a kid actually turned out to suck. (laughs) But I might have just gone over that. I might not have even clued in that it was her parents until like the end of the book. So I can imagine that landing really, really hard for someone who just doesn't catch it immediately. What I first got to the page of the like where the carriage and everything i actually put the book down and like stopped reading for the evening because i was mad <laughs> because it's like the last time we yeah. saw morton isabel was it was more i mean, was more happily ever after like yeah. you know in our episode we're, yeah we're polycule. happily ever after um yeah in a polycule <laughs> they you know they, they're they're having a great life and i was just like and i was like this was 12 books ago and like you know for a lot of people this was like six to eight years ago or whatever you know for me this was a year ago especially with terry who like constantly calls back characters and pulls people back in like you assume Rincewind is dead and then he's summoned as a demon and then he's summoned as like and then he shows up over here and now he's over mort and isabel have the most reasonable and then they walked off screen to come back on screen later and then they come back on screen and then they go over the cliff and then there's a fireball and we're done yeah well and and so this is where i'm this is where I'm at with the pacing is that it feels like there's two book halves here that I really, really like on their own. It's just that the combination of them feels it's shaky, disjointed to me. The, the combination of the Susan storyline, which is extremely good Mm. with the, musician storyline which is also extremely good just doesn't quite work to me so what made it work for me personally was that i didn't see it as a musician storyline i watched imp's story imp's story goes as slowly as susan's does the band goes Mm -hmm. really fast but there's a certain point where imp is Mm -hmm. dead 
Yeah. And his character stops evolving and just becomes a couple of quiet lines. Like he's he's an addict waiting for the next hit. He's, you know, to me, that's that's the thing that resonated is the theme of the book was like, if you take the thing you love to do and make it the thing that is going like, I'm going to make so much money. I'm going to be the most famous musician in the world. It will never be fun again. And he was just dead from the moment he walked into Agmorpork. And suddenly, like, the pacing of those stories of a walking corpse and a walking corpse maker just kind of <laughs> tied together well enough. So I wrote a little dissertation in the main themes section, but if it, somebody else wants to go first. Oh, by all means. Go for it. So the book starts out, this is a story about memory. And we've discussed that a little bit. But it's also the story about how music and emotion are intrinsically linked with with memory uh, almost as a glue or, you know, rearrange those however you want. Uh, there's a lot of references in this book to Buddy Holly's songs. And they're really on the surface, you know, fluffy 50s pop. But if you look at them closely, they're really searingly pure expressions of of love, of loneliness, and a desire for connection. And what's amazing is how the music itself does really earth itself in your spine. Like, like your spine's a lightning rod. Um, I saw the, the buddy Holly musical in two in the year 2000 with like some high school students uh, that we, we were all in England, in London together for various reasons. Um, and like people were dancing in the aisles, like young and old. It's just such a powerful, simple melody that just, gets you right in the um vulnerables and like it's so powerful of a connection that in several times when they reference buddy holly lines like i teared up while i was reading it and i had to like you know take a breath and it's funny how we're talking about this right so this episode was you know the the cgnt thing might be passe by the time this episode actually releases but like (laughs) we're in you know the tail end of a a like viral epidemic um choose words better of of a mimetic (laughs) epidemic of um a song style that is similarly simple and but you know like has complexities to it and music i think is is connection uh either by the shared experiences of of creating the music uh or the shared experience of just experiencing the music together and you know right now i think that a lot of us are really reaching out for connection after a year of quarantine um but also it's about how our collective memory tells us stories and nowhere does it do so more than the collection of artists who burn most brightly because they didn't burn long and you know the question always is were they just that good probably or is it because they didn't last long enough to fade into mediocrity? I'm looking at you, Bob Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, Buddy Holly, Freddie, Freddie well, Mercury. I mean, he, he, you know, he was active right. for a while. Um, but like uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Hendrix. Hendrix. Again, Kurt Cobain. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, artists who are discovered years after their deaths, who, who produced these like, these melodies that they very clearly just had to get out of their head and into the world, no matter the cost to them. And, you know, the buddies sort of abstracted here as a conduit for that. But like, I am just talking and talking. Um, 
<laughs> yeah. It's a podcast. That's what but, it's for. You know, the, the, um, and, you know, we're going to ignore the fact that, that Buddy Holly was building on decades, centuries of, of black and African musicians. But um, for the sake of this podcast, we're not going to go into a music theory discussion. Or are we? Oh, God, I hope not. <laughs> anyway, that's my Sorry, rant. For a music theory discussion, you can catch us at The Babylon Project. Oh, no. Really? <laughs> no, we're not. We are not. <laughs> we're just going to talk about bad sci-fi. We, all we talk about on uh, The Babylon Project in terms of music is bad simple you've, already, you've already edited those episodes aaron oh yeah i stuck that in this is me like looking at other like art forms um how like longevity will, will taint stuff for certain people or um like for example like to maybe have a um to build off this and go into a slightly tangent but like um last year there was the the documentary of uh, the Last Dance, which is about Michael Jordan's last year with the Chicago Bulls. Um, and it's a eight-episode series that is um, beautiful. Um, it was one of the best things I watched last year. It does not talk about him coming out of retirement to play for the Washington Wizards <laughs> because uh, nobody wants to remember that. <laughs> um, and it, it, it's about, uh, you know, it, it's a thing about, like, you know, how great moments and greatness crystallizes in our memory. And, you know, Maybe we don't want to remember the things that cause people to fade away. I, I could probably name five things off the top of my head of artists who um, have gone to bat maybe one season too long, two books too long, uh, a couple social media posts too long. Thank God that lady who wrote the wizard books died. <laughs> mm, death of the author. Because it'd be really unfortunate if she just kept saying things. And making new TV shows. Over. I don't even, like, I, I have a whole fucking tirade about that, and we're not going to do it. There's all the social bits, but then it's just, like, what what story are you going to fucking tell? There isn't one. Just shut up. It's Let like, it die. It's, it's also, like, you could have, you could have, like, lived on your pile of money quietly forever. But no. Could have just been a giant book smog just <laughs> sitting there on top of your hoard. Yelling at invisible short people. <laughs> all she has but to do no. is uninstall Twitter. Like that's all she has to do. Just uninstall Twitter and don't don't answer questions that you're going to give weird answers to. Or we could find a big black iron crossbow bolt. <laughs> you know you're not going to like this, but hear me out. We just got to get her to fly overhead. You know, you know, I'm sure we could put somebody there and be a million to one shot. Oh, but up, bump. Uh, but yeah, I had to job. bring us there back somehow. Um, that was the thing I kind of came back to is that like for for Buddy, at least there was that underlying plot where like he did the thing for the wrong reasons and it literally killed him. It sucked every bit of joy and experience out of it. And then he got to do it once. He got the festival together and he played his little like he did his uh, his harp song, mm -hmm. the one that won him the prize back home and everybody loved it. And then he sold his soul again. Yep. Then he died again. Except he didn't. And then he undied again. 
He's really bad at death. I mean, everybody in this book. Including death. Yeah. <laughs> True. <laughs> That's all <Sure>. deaths. <laughs> I... Rats did uh, great. Rats, rats, death and rats is uh, good. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, like one out of three deaths here is doing their job. Right down to... I didn't catch this the first time through. So, Mr. Cleet, for those who are not familiar, is the guy who's in charge of the Musicians Guild. And he's a piece uh, of mm-hmm. shit. He is not a musician. He is specifically, like... He is what the right fears in a union boss. <laughs> like he shows up with no connection to anything. He takes his union dues, he makes his money, and he gets out, which is not how unions work. <laughs> Shut up. But whatever. He he is the the rat bastard manager. He screws over all the musicians and he takes all the profits and he's trying to kill anyone who doesn't get him. At the end of the book, he dies. I can't remember how he dies. It was like yesterday, but I still don't. But what's important is that neither Susan nor Tall Death come for him. Rats yep. gets him. Yep. Rats is a good boy. He comes for rats. That's just how it is, yep. man. Yep. And I so I love that we've got we've got more musings on So back a million years ago when we talked about Mort there were these musings on a human doing the work of death and how that person in that role would be both kinder and more cruel than death himself. And we see a return to that with Susan, who you know has has a vengeful streak and but at the same time, you know, wants to meddle and make things better because she feels like it isn't fair. Um, and that that sense that you know things aren't fair going in both directions of you know wanting to help the people who are hurt by things but not being fair and take down a peg um, those who uh, are on the other side of that. I, I really liked that particular musing. I just really loved Susan's story in general. We've seen a lot of coming of age stories in these books. Um, you know, including Mort himself. And I feel like Susan was a home run. Susan learning about her family and learning about her history was very good. I, I liked it a lot. Um, and then and then her forging her own path forward in the world. You know, the, the points about, you know, it being Susan dealing with the loss of her parents is also a big part of this. Having a story that's tackling that kind of loss in a way other than outright sadness was interesting. You know, having having been through the loss of a parent myself and having, you know, not had any of the emotional reactions that media would like me to believe I would have had that my reaction was much closer to Susan's. Actually, Justin, could you headphones for a second? Sorry. Is we were talking about this, you know, the way Terry sort of plays with characters and and stuff is Susan kind of like a proto Tiffany. I feel like there's through lines. Possibly the, the kind of no nonsense approach. Yeah. And just sort of cutting through the world like a knife. 
That's where the I'm not sure that I even call it a proto Tiffany so much as like Susan worked. He's like, okay, I can do another one of those. Like it's Tiffany doesn't necessarily I don't feel like she necessarily builds on Susan in a way that feels you know, mm-hmm. Susan plus plus. It's more like a different iterative. Yeah, it just it feels to me you know? like he takes the ideas around Susan and was like, wait, I can have a female protagonist who doesn't have an extrinsic reason for being special. They just are. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we can bring Justin back. Justin, come back. That may not be the only one. Sorry, Justin. <laughs> um, another main theme that I sort of pulled out was like the, the tension between what you're expected to be and what you have to be, uh, which is explored both with regard to Susan. She just can't, the universe is just like, hey, you're deaf now. So she almost can't resist the duty. Uh, and then in Imp, uh, or Buddy Nay Imp, who who has to play. And that's that's something that we've seen a lot in the coming of age stories. Mm-hmm. And I would I would classify this book mm-hmm. with those. Mm-hmm. So we've got the we've got our section here on. Oh, you wanted to say something else in this main themes section, right, Dylan? I all I was going to say is that like I I kind of mentioned it a little bit up at the top, but like this feels the least themed of a lot of Discworld books, especially like this late in the game where Terry sort of hit his stride and knows what he's doing. Where like there are books where he's got a lot to say and it's like half social commentary, you know. The the Vimes boot theory of economic inequality is a key example where he just straight up is like, no, hold on. I got some shit. Yeah. When I was trying to pull a button, like there's there's the point that like made it real for me but at the same time there's no point where i feel like terry is really stepping aside as an author to say something to the audience you know he's playing with themes in the way that an author usually does in that there's a through line that kind of connects the things that are happening but it doesn't feel so much like he's got a thing to say about it yeah it's more just having fun with the fun with the world and yeah that brings yeah. me to our next session here which is what are the what are the tropes that the books that the book is engaging with or satirizing mm. and it's just like literally be here all night. everything yeah. just all of music everything but also the uh, mysterious music the, myster- the mysterious shop that you've never seen before yep yep and that that happened yep. in one of the Ritzwood books, right? Yeah. And I love that I love that everybody other than the band was, hears about that shop and it's like, oh, it's one of those. Mm-hmm. One of those shops. The band knew. Like they were too It's like lampshaded and then subverted and then lampshaded again because like they, they go back yeah. to it and every they're like, Oh, we can't it, it disappeared. And then they're like, Oh, it's over there. Uh and then yeah. <laughs> go in and we're like specifically cliff the troll notices like no it's it's right here you're on the wrong but side then, of the street and then when they mention it to the shopkeeper it's oh, oh god i am on the wrong side of the street and it's just that that uh air quotes human tendency to just overwrite failures of logic and be like oh no 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 this must be how it was that seed might be one of my favorites from the book just in terms of just like how funny it is because it's just like it's like the it's at first you get the oh it's real no it's just here you jerk and then and the yep. the 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 reversals for it it's like uh, gosh there there are more traps here than a <laughs> and and so many characters are like 
let's see what was it it was it a shop where everything in it was really interesting and you wanted to check out all of it did it appear in a mysterious place was it a dark and stormy night okay it wasn't a dark and stormy night but like it should have been <laughs> it's like you know mysterious shops in your narrative likelier than you would think million and one chances turn up more than you would think one in a million i mean um the and you know the, then also like all of the all of the instruments have numbers on them but then the guitar is just one yeah yeah it's yeah. the instrument it was there at the beginning the cosmic microwave yeah, the uh, the listening monks make their, their triumphant return in a brief mention in this mm-hmm. book it's great yes yes they're good and that's it's one of the better science references to the idea of just like i don't i don't know how many people know about the cosmic microwave background but it is literally what that counting yeah. is where like just before the at the instance of the big bang everything was compressed into one location so there's a little bit of heat at like really low frequency microwave range that you can actually detect basically everywhere in the universe and it's the best evidence we have for the Big Bang. I missed it, like, in the first time that he does it in the book, where he's like, you know, the, the first sound they hear is one, two, three, four. But then, you know, the, some of them swear there's a one, two, one, two before it. And I didn't get it until, the, until Asphalt goes up and does the fake sound check at the cavern. Oh yeah. Oh okay. I read it as the uh, the standard like one like, two one two three four. You count in a halftime measure. And no, then it was it was the yeah, you know going exactly. up to the mic tap tap one two check. one two. I think it. I mean, this is one of those cases where I think you could read it either way, and neither of them is wrong. Mm-hmm. Some good troll stuff in this too, actually. Yeah. Chrysoprase. Yeah. We get we and detritus. Yeah. I will not. And chalky. Yeah. Um, Oh yeah, Chalky. I'm still uh, mad about asphalt, by the way. Asphalt the sheer existence frustrates me. Yeah. <laughs> there was a couple of points in this book where I would just put down the book and turn to my partner and be like, okay, you have to hear this now. Because this is just Justin, I feel like you've you've probably got it by now, but like the first time you read like the better written Discworld books, yeah. it's a mile a minute and you can't catch all of them. But a couple of books deep, you start like feeling the shape of them so i'd read a sentence and be like no something i smell a joke (laughs) that that definitely translates into something and then you google a translation and you're like yep yep that was a joke that was yeah okay cool moving on uh my my favorite uh buddy holly reference is much like you mentioned buddy holly universally is like fuzzy poppy stuff like everybody remembers the major chords the bounciness of it like it's it's sweet and heartfelt and then you get the uh you know since we started doing music with rocks in glaude is talking about how like it feels like this is gonna go bad this is going somewhere terrible and every day it's getting closer (laughs) and yet they just keep zooming toward that precipice every day it's getting closer (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you know wh- just one more before we move on because again if we covered all of the the band the, the music references we would die oh. but glaude at one point redecorates their hotel room uh he does that with every hotel room yes. <laughs> which you know 
to explain it, it, there there's this trope of bands destroying their hotel rooms and they would, you know, euphemistically call it redecorating, but he puts nice curtains on or, you know, sometimes the rest of the band question his color tastes. Yeah. Why why were they so mad? I mean, I get it. Maybe yellow and orange don't go that well together, but I was just <laughs> trying to help. And the, yeah, that's that was fun because like Dibbler is putting them up in like absolute crap shacks. And then yeah. Glaude is like, I'm going to redecorate and make it nice. It, it is, again, like just an inversion of like the Rolling Stones showing up in the nicest hotel in town and trashing it. And Glaude shows up and he's like, this is a shithole. I'm not saying in a shithole. Yeah. Let me fix this. Okay. So should we talk about the buttons? If I can go first, so here's my here's the the quantum bit. So Aaron, you've been saying for you know, the last year and change um, that you have this theory about you know that observing the disc changes it, and there is a line right in the start of this book. The but if it is true that the act of observing changes the thing which is observed, it's even more true that it changes the observer. Asterisk, because of quantum. So there you go, right? And that's the thing, is like, it's the act of observing it that changes death and sets him on his whole spiel. But it's also the moment that Susan sees it, that everything clicks for her as well has a nice little poetry to it the same sort of moment was what got me but it was like one of the last things in the book was it talks about susan getting back to her dorm room and she has a fairly nice mundane interaction with her roommate and with the teacher and then she starts crying like she just quietly cries for the entire night trying to keep it down and the line was you could choose immortality or you could choose humanity but you had to choose for yourself And from the beginning of the book, she's sitting in that weird little space. Like, she will not cry about her family. She's invisible sometimes. She can walk through walls now and then. And she gets more and more deathy until she decides, like, you know what? Death is my granddad. He's a lovely granddad. I got to get back to class. And then suddenly she actually mourns her family. It's lovely. Yeah, I think, like, like, it's... Susan was sort of just like the slow burn button for me this entire time. Mm-hmm. The I, I, I read this as a family I read this as a family member was going through a health scare, and so this was all unfair. This all hit a little bit hard. That's rough, um, man. It, it, well, this this it, it, everything's fine now, but it was Good. just like the tension was there, and it's like it, it's that this is why we're doing this show and why we why Terry is here is is that like even in a book as wild as this one there is something very poignant and just like how like in Susan's story and like how she, and like with that whole thing of like how she deals with it, how does it acknowledge it? And meanwhile, death is doing his best to forget everything. Yeah. Uh, and there was a line as well that, um, that I really liked. It came just at the end really, but um, it was with death and Susan talking and that concept where, Death wasn't able to save them, um, and he he couldn't offer them life, but just like you know the timeless eternity of his realm, um, and that they to them it wasn't worth the cost. He can't create life, but he can let you be immortal. Yeah, like Albert. That that dichotomy keeps coming mm-hmm. up with Albert, where he would try to like grow plants, but he can't, or you know, and that's it's just mm-hmm. so well handled 
over and over again. And poor, poor Albert, who just has, you know, uh, 30 seconds left or something along those lines. Yeah. Well, 19 oh, days. Oh, it went well, from... It was 19 days. Yeah, until, yeah it was 19 days broke. until um, his lifetimer broke. I do like the ending of that, of like, that, like, Susan is giving some of her life for Imp. That, that, uh, that is... In, in like all the various tropes of shit, that's like, ooh, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. I like that shit. That's which leads into again another old old music reference, where like they spend the entire time, Imp is a druid, and everyone thinks he's an elf. They keep saying he looks elvish. Oh my god! Over and over again, and then he's a musician who had a lovely career, and then he died, and then. I, in the reset of reality, he basically gets a job as a fry cook. They go get fries. They see him in the back and on the way out. Like, did you see that guy? I mm-hmm. swear he's Elvish. It's Elvis. <laughs> it's all just building yeah. up to Elvis isn't yeah. dead. <laughs> Again, moments where you just got to take your hat off. Like, Terry has spent an entire book just hoping that you would catch a bad phonetic pun. Like, a strongly phonetic Yeah, pun. it's such a like it's such a dumb pun, or it should be. There's also, according to L Space, uh, in order to fully appreciate the I'd swear he's Elvish joke, you'd have to know that Christy McCall had a big hit a decade or so before the book with a song called There's a Guy Who Works Down the Chip Shop Swears He's Elvis. So, and so you'd have to live in like 1990s UK I, to get that joke. And I also thought it was funny My desk is that too heavy to um, this is right on the heels of us, of Terry writing and us reading Lords and Ladies too. Oh yeah. Elves are bad. Elves are bad news. And there's a comment in here that um, it's a throwaway line somewhere near the beginning that Imp couldn't be Elvish because he creates music and Elves can't create. Yeah, that's true. Um, it's just a, it's just a throwaway, but it's a nice little reference to yeah. it's, it kind of reminds us all that Terry has not forgotten about Elves in Lords and Ladies. He's just making the stupid pun. Oh no, Justin. The Dean, when he sees the motorcycle says it's a masterpiece. It's a triumph. <laughs> oh, 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 boo. <laughs> listen, listen, I make puns with all of them, but it's just uh, God damn it. Like, there, there's just so many that I'm like, I probably missed like half of them. Triumph is a very famous brand of British motorcycle. Uh, it's, yep. I swear that there, I swear that right. every page had at least five puns in this. Mm-hmm. Like, it was just. And the motorcycle is the Dean's second high-intensity invention uh, of the book, because the first one was a very, very large pair of denim pants. That, right, called Deans. Yeah, they're not going to be called Arch Chancellors. <laughs> yep. Um, Just a big old pair of blue Deans. <laughs> There's also the the kind of sideband um that served only to be a vehicle for puns like that was its entire purpose of existence was to be a funnel for every pun that terry could not put somewhere else We, we can catch up with that in a second one of my buttons was another sort of broad thing which was the invisibles which i think are fully realized in in this book 
um, for the, I think for the first time. I mean, we've seen, I think we've seen Fowl Ron before and uh, we might've seen Coffin Henry, but we definitely haven't seen the duck man. Um, and yeah, this is the, the first of the duck man or sideways. I can't remember his name. Um, Arnold sideways, but like the, the, it's really Terry acknowledging the full, like that the Ankh-Morpork Park is a full society with all of its pretty awful things because every city has invisibles. Every city has people that people don't look at. And the fact that Terry gives them such a place of prominence in many of his Ankh Morpork books going forward, I think is something to at least note. I don't know what it means, but I think it's something to, to note. Yeah. It's a weird little space where for a man who has so much to say about things like income inequality and how people treat the people beneath them, the invisibles are this weird space where they're played purely straight and they're used for gags, but not like punching down, but also there's never a point where we talk about them as like an injustice. They're just a fact. Mm -hmm. It's just sad. And it's not like he shies away from talking about economic inequality and egg more pork. So a thing just occurred to me. Uh, we talk about the Duck Man. Duck Man, again, for those who haven't read the book, which also, like, why? what are you? What? Uh, <laughs> is a man who has a duck on his head. It's in the name, really. Uh, and basically, no one ever asks questions about this. But that line, that whole, you could choose immortality or you could choose humanity. Same as Susan was stuck between the two, death was. And the moment where he chooses not to be human, the moment where he chooses immortality, one of the first things he does is he's hanging out with the invisibles and he turns around and just goes, why is that duck on your head? The response is just, what duck? Ah, okay. And then he just leaves. Because the least human thing you can possibly do is turn to the homeless guy who wanders around your town and go like, why do you wear this big feathery hat? Yeah. The fact that uh, Veterinary can order around Fowler Run's smell is pretty funny. Oh my though. god, that, that was that was probably my like that might have been like a top three moment of the book for me. Like Veterinary in this book is fantastic. So, yeah. so Veterinary in this book. <laughs> it's like, but the don't let me detain you. And the, the smell leaves. That's that's the thing is like this is one of those books where you look through and like everyone is who they're supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. Red Cully has that constant. Quick digression on the power of punctuation. There is a point where Ponder is explaining some science thing to Ridcully. It might have been the Big Bang. It might have been the concept of sound waves. I can't remember. But uh, there's a point where it talks about how Ridcully is basically like about to go off. Like you can't tell him things he doesn't know. <laughs> and Ponder keeps going. And Ridcully's response is just, all right, go on. Like those, those are the words he says. Except it's specifically, all right, period. Go on. And I have heard that so many times in my life. That period is very, if it's a comment or if it's a comma, then you know, it's like you, you start explaining something. All right, go on. Yeah. Keep coming. All right. Go on. And it's just that dead level of an academic talking, like the high tier academic, mm -hmm. not even an academic works at an academic institution, talking down to a researcher where it's just like, fast, fine, fast forward to your do. thesis defense. So the other 
thing that I pulled out as a button is right near the genuine of the book um, where it talks about, we talked, we mentioned death playing the, uh, playing the guitar with a, a piece of his scythe. Um, and it says there are millions of chords. There are millions of numbers and everyone forgets that one, the one that is a zero, but without the zero numbers are just arithmetic without the empty chord. Music is just noise. Death played the empty chord. And I really felt like this was the sort of the key to all, all of the thing. I think that this is what like, this is, I think both why there's fast and slow there's because the music is about contrast and similarly life is a oh God, I'm getting really waxing really paperback philosophical <laughs> here. Um, but if all of life is music, then it wouldn't be music. It would just be noise. And, you know, similarly, if you, if you have someone or something forever, then without that contrast, do you ever really understand the value of them to you? So that's me being sappy. It's good sappy though. Yeah. Yeah. It's fair sappy. It's it's on theme for the book sappy. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. Do you want to pull out of it with your with your quantum question? I mean, I think Anna just talked about it actually. You know, the the, uh, the changing the observer. Yeah, that's that's literally true. That's what the act of observation is. It, when we talk about observing in science, we mean measurement, and you can't mm-hmm. make a measurement without changing the system. Mm-hmm. That's it. It's like you have a you have one closed system, you have another closed system, and the act of measuring is having them interact. And the way you know that you made a measurement is your device went boop. Yeah. So like the the meta arc of the books of Discworld is us by measuring. way of Terry observing and measuring the disc and everything changes because he observes it. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's pseudoscience, but whatever. <laughs> well, I, I, mean, I thought it was interesting because, you know, it's it's you know, it's kind of pseudoscience, but also like Terry basically precisely referenced that exact thing right there. Mm-hmm. Um, I also love that Terry was a huge science nerd. That, oh, yeah. Um, it's all over the place. Like, if I remember correctly, his before he was a fiction writer, he was a science journalism writer. Um, mm-hmm. And that really, that really comes out in a lot of the details of the disc, like the the way that he's got the the disc laid out and the the thing with like the speed of light on the disc yeah. and how I mean, it's this how book it's like mucked up literally has its roots in that whole cosmic microwave background thing like this yeah. book is about the big bang and i i love that that we have that aspect because it's um you know, it is fantasy, and it's like an absolutely bonkers fantasy world. But there's a really strong science through line in the whole it's thing. Also what makes it work and lets it go on so long? Because, like, I think the the classical failure of superheroes is that they're immutable, right? Spider-Man will never be happy. Spider-Man will always be working a shitty job. Batman will never stop crime. Superman will like there will always be a bigger fish whatever but like 
the act of observing changes the system because we're looking at this and someone asks a question about the way the disc works. Terry writes an extra sentence just being like, well, I guess, you know, this is how that works then. Everything is just, it's extrapolation. It's building on itself and asking reasonable questions and then just trying to provide a vague answer and then using that as a platform to ask another question. It's really nicely put together that way. Yeah, because like, you know, we there's so many aspects to this book, but, you know, just starting with the basic thing of like, well, what if there was a guitar? What if rock music on the disc? What if? Yeah. What role does rock music play? Well, what if it was like the Big Bang? Also, what if it was a parasite? And it, but it, and it also starts smearing out, not just rock music, but then there's like, doo-wop and there's a reference to rap music and there's yep. like <laughs> yep. dwarves always write songs with hole in it mm-hmm. gotta have a hole yeah. <laughs> the only, oh, except for the hi-ho song right yeah. oh god the hi-ho song there's, and there's many references to the wizard staff as a knob on the end Yeah. the undying song of these books there's also like- the uh, the root of the word wizard we get the etymology there. <laughs> Comes from an old word for someone who knows everything at the bottom. Wisars. <laughs> <laughs> so on the, the thing of like Terry explaining things, there are two very good like explanations that he does of how a thing manifests in the disc. The, the first is a supercomputer, um, which which is very happy. My grandfather worked on one of the world's first supercomputers. So these have a, uh, this oh, runs dope. in the family. Uh, yeah, I, I, I could share, I could share a hilarious story about my dad's experience um, with bunny suits at Ford Aerospace after the pod. Um, <laughs> but um, so we get like, we, we get, which, so the supercomputer is ants, which Okay. You get it to do um, some really complex mathematics if you can get enough bugs in it. <laughs> I mean, isn't that what quantum computing basically is? Well, I, I was just going off of like, that is blatantly a joke of like the opposite of coding. Yeah. <laughs> we just yep. have to get um, all the bugs out. Just put more <laughs> bugs in. Put more bugs yeah. in. Also, I mean, the whole thing serves as a vehicle for anthill inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, like, it's a reference to uh, Gödel Escher-Bach, where there's a discussion of the anthill as a metaphor for intelligence, which is something that I may have read. But the thing that is, I think, even more impressive in this book is nobody, nobody asked this. But Terry was like, how would I make space invaders if I was limited by the technology on the disc? And this is like he goes into a long it. paragraph. It, it is a long paragraph. We get into it, and it is. I was just like, "Wow, that's uh, you thought about this a lot." There's there's a moment where you read that and you're like, "Could can I build that?" Yeah, you're like, if I were, if I were better at building things, I think I could make that. But then the, leapfrog off of that, like the thing, the thing that that machine had replaced was a Quizzo machine, which Carrot oh, yeah. had oh, snuck 
cop questions into. <laughs> Oh, I wish I had that reference down because that was such a boy. good line. Our lawful, lawful good is not lawful, stupid boy. There had been a quizzing, the quizzing device, a three-ton water-driven monstrosity based on a recently discovered design by Leonard of Querm. Oh, hi, Dead in Discworld reference. It had been a bad idea. Captain Carrot of the Watch, who had a mind like a needle under his open, smiling face, had surreptitiously, surreptitiously substituted a new roll of questions like. Were you near Vorton's Diamond Warehouse on the night of the 15th? And who was the third man who did the blagging at Bear Hugger's Distillery last week and arrested three customers before they caught on? So I didn't have the page number written down. The note that I have is just carrot fixing the quiz machine at the mended drum is Vimes' fault. It is. Like, yeah. It's just one of those things where like, I feel like when he showed up, carrot was lawful stupid. Like not not quite, but like he was very much sweet and naive, going all the way to like razor clever of like if I just change the questions in there, they'll just tell me. That's a Vimes move. That is absolutely Vimes corrupting my sweet baby boy. Our our boy learned real well. He's he. It wasn't even like lawful stupid. It was just like lawful unformed block. Like, yeah, he was lawful. Listen, listen. We 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 we've like we we've settled this. He's lawful himbo. Lawful yes. himbo. <laughs> Slowly mutating into just lawful hunk. <laughs> there we go. I, yeah, my my note for my note for the 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 space invaders one is just, bitch. Did you really write this out? <laughs> <laughs> the worst part is that was a complex enough system that he didn't just write it out. You know, he had a diagram. Oh, yeah. Like, he sat down, he was thinking about it, and that was a complex enough mechanism that there was other paper involved in little diagrams. I'm, I'm, I wonder whether if we looked in one or more of the Science of Discworld books, whether we would find that diagram. I don't think there are actually diagrams in any of them. Uh, uh, curses. Uh, their, their whole structure is just alternating Discworld doing a bad science and then a scientist being like, all right, so here's what he's talking about. Like, it's not a bad structure, but. Oh, so we had a, you know, we had one book where wizards don't summon death, but then they did summon death in this book, yeah. except it was Susan. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think one of my favorite lines in the book where Susan says, oh, my God. And Rid Kelly very politely says, and which one would that be? <laughs> oh, that's so good. I was knobs and colon when they saw Susan going by had the entire long conversation about, you know, what death's name should be with right. the assumption of Keith death, which I particularly like. And then, and then and, they say, you know, that's her Susan death later on in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, there, there were some, I mean, we, we kind of forgot about the knobs and colon, but you know, I, I like knobs and colon a lot better in non watch books that they they provide very interesting color commentary yeah. in books like this. Um I don't enjoy them as much in the watch books, but but no, in things like this punching or punching bags in the watch books. Yeah. You have to interact with them directly, but when you let them do commentary here, it's like you can have them be kinda dim relative to the But no one's gonna mention that because they're just here to kinda It's like they're the they're the like 
a weird Statler and a Waldorf. You're the Greek chorus of the everyman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just realized that, like, this is the, the, the this, that, this book with the right of Ash Kinte coming back means that I get to, it means that I get to post the, the flex tape beam again. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, any problem? Any problem the wizards have? Right of Ash Kinte. <laughs> So pull um, something like we should definitely talk about the grad students, but like maybe we should save other things for other people to read the book and discover. Yes. Um, okay. I, we do have to talk about the best, possibly the best pun in this book, which uh, let me pull that up here. Glaude is asked, who is the most famous horn player there ever was? Brother Charnel, said the dwarf promptly. Everyone knows that. He stole the altar gold from the Temple of Offler and had it made into a horn and played magical music until the gods caught up with him and pulled his right. But if you went out there and asked and asked who the most famous horn player is, would they remember some felonious monk or would they shout for Glaude Godson? <sighs> God damn it. And that that was the one that was like, ooh. Yeah, that's, ooh. A, that's a good pun. Oh, wait, actually, I have to also call out, I'm not going to read it now, but the multi-page shaggy dog story leading to the discussion of a hard-of-hearing large cat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, there's a prince reference in there, too. Mm-hmm. The symbol thing? Yeah. Okay, grad students. Yeah. Uh, Ponder Stibbins. And Hex are the most at home in Discworld I have ever felt in my entire life. I have read at least 30 of these books. And every time we wander into the high energy magic building, there's just a breath of like, home. someone's (laughs) going to demand something unreasonable, ask me to explain something and then decide they don't want it explained. It's just going to be fine. It's all going to be good. (laughs) (laughs) And that someone is Buster Ridcoley. You, you bastard. And skinny guys and parkas. Which, oddly enough, is the exact opposite of my university experience. Huh. It's usually a bunch of, like, you wind up with a larger guy who refuses to take his shorts off and put on real pants, despite the fact that it's negative <laughs> 30 in Canada. <laughs> oh, yeah, those. I, I love the, the names that all the grad students have. The, the nicknames. That must be like a UK specific thing too. Yeah, because it, it feels very fratty and I've never had anyone in like a science department walk away with a nickname like that. Yeah, it might also be it might also be a relic of an older time type of thing. Basement of the physics building might have been a like smaller, more bro y club. I Although don't I realize think it is changed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think I've ever been in a department larger than like 30 people. One thing that I can't tell whether I'm okay with it or not is actually the way Rid Cully treats Susan. Like, I can't tell whether it's charming old man or like Rid Cully being Rid Cully or like creepy old man gross. Like, so the thing yeah. I liked about the way that was handled was that he is creepy old man gross for a while and she responds poorly. Like she's mad at him. And then he turns on regular charm and she's like, well, okay, the guy is charming and he's changing tact. It's like, I'm not going to say that Rid Cully isn't 
creepy old man gross and a piece of shit. But he <laughs> is also like charming old man sometimes. He has that in him. Yeah. The thing that I... So I didn't write it down there, but the thing that I... I think that this is a book that um, probably along with moving pictures is probably one of the ones that will age out a bit and be less accessible to new readers going forward. That I think that a lot of the music references would be really inaccessible to people substantially younger than me or who, you know, haven't listened to a lot of classic rock etc that's the thing is like when he was referencing these things it was it was rock music and then it was classic rock music and now like buddy holly's the 1950s like that's yeah that's 70 years ago on average a man born when buddy holly was making music is dead now <laughs> yeah maybe we can get the tiktok teens to discover buddy holly maybe yeah. but i think i think that it's I it's it's not something that makes it not age well um because of it's not necessarily gross it's just right like it's not it's not a gross not age well but yeah. it's no, I, I, it. I think that I think that it's aging out a bit mm-hmm. yeah for, uh, for a book full of tropes like they're very time dependent tropes I think you're entirely right uh, the other thing that I think hasn't aged well is quoth quoth the raven uh too bad which mm, because he's very much a voice of the author and there are times where he sounds like my grandpa and I can put up with it. Like when he complains about <laughs> education and like that was, that was a trope for my family was like uh, my, my brothers would go over to my grandpa's house and wait for the bus to come for school. And he would be sitting there in his chair, reading the morning paper, talking about all the overeducated morons who are doing all this stupid shit because universities taught him too much and they don't understand the real world. I can deal with that. There's a point where like Susan isn't quite doing the death thing right, and his quote was, "That's the problem with women in the professions." Hmm. I'm just like, that's echoed by somebody in the in the in the university as well yeah. later in the book. It it is a absolute thing that I would have heard out of a piece of shit grad student, uh, <laughs> and just makes you want to like punch that bird. Yeah, I, I mean, think- you mostly want to punch Quoth. Yeah, Quoth, Quoth kind of chills out a bit before Hogfather, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And gets more into eye eating. Yeah, that it, it's, um, he becomes a little bit more like body horror gross and less like creepy gross. Speaking of which, uh, jumping forward one, because I don't think there's anything like there's anything you wish had been done differently aside from shoot the bird. I'm, I'm pretty good. <laughs> uh, uh, it's, oh God. It's like the parrot all over again. Yeah. Like it. don't write birds. That's it. <laughs> Stick to things that walk. Maybe oh, fish. True. We'll see. Um, is this the first actual description of like the hog father and festivities we, in this book? Yeah, I think so. I, think so. I, I we've get, we get we get name drops of Hogfather yeah. before, but I'm, up to this I'm point, sure... Hogfather is a thing that they mention just sort of as a world building technique. Is like I, I think... keep referencing ho- holidays. Yeah, I think they reference Hog's on. Watch, but not the Hogfather. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also the Tooth Fairy. Yeah, we get Tooth Fairies, and we get and we get the establishment of how the Tooth Fairy uh, franchise works. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh boy, am I looking forward to that book. 
but there there is there's plenty of other little references to other bits of disc world that are peppered through this is probably right around the time where i think the disc has fully come together as like a world Mm -hmm. you can just throw in references and it's definitely a reference to something as opposed to him like laying groundwork and this is the second third time we've seen the librarian go berserk on the unseen university organ yeah which is just always something that i love you know the the fact that they have a the fact that he has a Vox Day and a Vox Diabolus stop. <laughs> well, I think the first one was the the organ and Lanker, right? Maybe. Well, he also plays it for the for Vimes's wedding. Mm, true, true. But I see that you've got the reference to uh, Men at Arms for Mister Hong opening up his his <laughs> takeaway. But ha- has anybody addressed the fact that? a fish restaurant on Dagon Street is really a bad choice. (laughs) (laughs) That's terrifying as a concept. Yeah. That's that's such a good joke, though. It is. Like I said, there's, there's all those jokes he makes where it's just like, either the joke itself or the way the reference is structured is just a throwaway sentence, and if you get the joke, you'll make it for yourself. Oh. They're wonderful. And there's a footnote in Witches Abroad talking about a dwarf named Glod. Glod Glodson is apparently canonically the son of that dwarf or the offspring of that dwarf because we haven't gotten into dwarven gender dynamics yet. He uses he pronouns, but uh, most dwarves at this point use he pronouns, except, except for Gloria. Interesting. So that's weird. She's ahead of her time. It may also be something where mm-hmm. this might also be, you know, taking the Doylean um, you hadn't come perspective. Up with that yet. Yeah, it might be that the dwarf gender dynamics hadn't quite clicked in Terry's head yet. Is that we'll a sufficient that, spoiler that we are worried about, Justin, for that one? No. Yeah. I, I know that dwarf gender is a thing. Yeah, the, the long story uh, short is they all have beards. So, like, how do you know? Yeah. That, so no one questions it. That, Non-binary yeah, and dwarf like, is just male. Like, it's the default assumption. And then you get married yeah. and you find out. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, 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 that's, that's, I've known that since. That's been, that's, gets established in Garden. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's been, yeah. it's been, Terry's been poking at it, but it won't it's really explored. be explored until yeah. later. Yeah. Think Feet of Clay, right? Yeah, Feet of Clay is the first Pretty one. Sure. I think there's something you want to say about Glaude in the library, right? Oh, yeah. So there's a really interesting scene where Glaude is trying to get in to talk to the librarian to get him to briefly join their band. And he acts in a way that I think is probably very familiar to people from an underrepresented minority interacting with primarily majority people in that he goes into it leaning into the spin of these wizards expectations uh, and very clearly knows he's doing it. Uh, and, and I just thought that that was a really interesting scene. Yeah. He wanders in asking for the librarian being very, very vague about it has them tell him to go in like, oh yeah, yeah, he's in there. If you if you talk to him, make sure you scratch your head and under your arms. He really likes that. It makes him feel at home. Mm-hmm. Walks in and immediately goes like, 
Those guys over there, they called you a monkey. You might want to do something about that. <laughs> yeah, it was good Yeah, if scene. I walked in and just said, hey, can you take me to the library? And they never would have done it. But if I go in and I say like, hey, I heard you have a gorilla in here. You know, they're going to. And then sort of metatextually, at this point, I don't think that Terry had what they sort of started euphemistically calling the embuggerance, which was his um, sudden and very progressive um alzheimer's which which ultimately assisted in taking his life and you know that he talks a few times in the book about you know this cosmic cruel cosmic joke that the gods play on the great musicians which is to take something away from them you know and it's just kind of hurt me a little bit reading that um in the context of what later happens to terry you know ripping this entire world that he created from whole cloth away from him but it also like it provides kind of a a nice irony to it in that like the thing he likes to talk about in this book is that idea of like burn bright die young you'll be remembered for your successes Mm -hmm. and he's one of like the few artists i could ever reference that like did he die potentially prematurely of something like loosely non-natural causes like he got sick and went out relatively ugly yes but he wrote 40 some odd fucking books and even the ones that suck are good for their time and are rough because of like political elements there's nothing i could ever point at that i've read of terry pratchett's that is not good writing he burned right he burned for six or seven eternities yeah he just kept churning it out Mm mm-hmm to continue to put out one book a year, even during his decline, was amazing. Yeah. Um, that man kicked all kinds and of it'll be it'll be interesting as well when we get into reading those later books because, you know, there's the... Y'all make the Hamilton reference here of it feels like he's writing like he's running out of time. Mm, oh, God, there's so much anger in those books. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, and I think it'll be, it'll be really interesting... To get to those eventually someday, yeah, in you know yeah, a couple and then years. we're gonna have we, we might have to have like a special, uh, a special episode when we're reading Shepherd's Crown where we can all just like find all of the people who have read the books with <laughs> us and like cry together. Yeah, um, pretty much. Because I still haven't read that book. I it's think it's not pretty. No, I I have read the Shepherd's Crown and it is an amazing book. It's a lovely book and it's one of those books that like in retrospect he must have known it was the last one. But also knowing that it it is not going to be a good day for you. Yeah. Well, I think you're, Dylan, you're the only person I know who's read it. I don't endorse doing it. It hurt a lot. My my wife has, and she's very annoyed at me for not having read it yet. Because she's read all the Tiffany books. I just can't, I mean... Eventually we will because it's what we've said we'll do as part of this project, but uh, I haven't been able to bring myself to read it. I will spoil absolutely nothing. What I will say is, Justin, you remember how you started this book and then you put it down? Yeah. Start that book like a week early because you're going to take a couple (laughs) days off after like the first pseudo chapter. (sighs) Well, on that that light note... (laughs) Other Round stuff. world references. Yeah, well, first off, uh, 
Yamados, or uh, however you pronounce the devil Owen Welsh, uh, if you look at it backwards, is Sodom all. I saw somewhere that there's uh, it that itself is a reference to another like Welsh poet somewhere. I can't I can't remember the exact reference, but it, that is a joke that is also a reference. It's Dylan Thomas. It is yes, it's Dylan Thomas. Is he Welsh or Irish? Is he for, he's I don't know. He's from one of those funny talking ones. <laughs> there is a there's a reference. Uh, it, um, Susan says uh, it makes a reference to the um, program. This is your life, mm-hmm. which for those of you who aren't into weird old esoterica uh, was a biography show that ran in the 50s and 60s. One of my favorites is when they're on a mission from Glaude. Mm hmm. There's so many Blues Brothers references in this book. I, I have to pull up my notes to get the reference, but there was a point where they rattled off the acronym uh, that Alfred has a towel embroidered with Y-M-R-C-O-T-I-G-B-S-A. The Young Men's Reformed Cultists of the Icar God Bell Shimmerath Association because every now and then Alfred has to go stay at the Y. Uh, mm-hmm. Yep. Which is a callback to, I believe, Light Fantastic. Yep, yep, that is. One of my, I'm not going to do many, but one of the, the one that really I enjoyed, just, you know, a little hearty chuckle, was uh, the band that comes in at one point that's named We're Certainly Dwarves. <laughs> which is a They Might Be Giants joke. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't get that. And one. we we know we know from previous things. That, so the foul Ron's um, uh, chatter. It, Terry made a text generator using Chinese takeout menus and the lyrics from the album Flood. The other one was uh, when. So of course, you know, rock music catches on. Everybody's got to learn to play guitar. Everyone has to learn to. Well, I mean, this is too early, but. If he wrote this game, you know, a de- this book a decade later, then everyone would be learning to play Wonderwall. Instead, we get the reference to uh, everyone going to the guitar maker, and they clearly have no respect for their instruments, so he needs the shitty ones that his apprentice made. So he calls in Gibson, starts selling them the Gibson guitars, <laughs> and pays a troll to stand there, making sure that they don't touch any of the nice merchandise, and that no one starts playing Pathway to Paradise in the store. <laughs> A definite reference to the number of assholes who have shown up in like a guitar center and started playing Stairway to Heaven to show everyone that they are very special people indeed. <laughs> there are so many of these references that just yeah. made me think of like my old bands and get tired. Um, the the Musicians Guild, by the way, is on Tin Lid Alley, which is a reference to Tin Pan Alley. Where a lot of the a lot of the 1950s and before music was was sort of generated by these workshops of musicians. Similarly, the final festival is at Hyde Park, spelled uh, like you know, not being seen. Uh, but Hyde Park in Britain is the site of many many huge rock concerts, including like the Stones, which like feels like it should be what the reference is because it's a band with rocks in playing at Hyde Park but at the same time it's like generically festival land so 
Yeah. Yeah. Can't call that the definite direct reference. And just to reiterate, in case we haven't made it utterly, utterly clear, Impicellum translates to Buddy Holly. Yep. <laughs> Thank you, Terry. Ooh, wee, ooh. And it's and it's made explicit. It's it's made explicit in the text of the novel yeah. as well. Yeah. Like it's not. This isn't subtle. No. I'm surprised they didn't try to name the band the Crickets, honestly, or yeah, something they, similar, or the Locusts, or something. They showed odd restraint here and there, where like they went for a lot of like blatant jokes, but not necessarily obvious jokes. Yeah. That dichotomy makes any sense? Yeah. Okay. So, how would we rate this book? Uh, Dylan, as our guest, would you like to go first? I'm going to give this one uh, five out of six intact guitar strings. Not that I could play with all six anyway. Anna. I'm going to give the, the book overall 17 out of 19 of Albert's remaining days. Um, but I'll give it 21 out of 19 for Terry's pun game in this one. Justin. Well, it's dark outside and I'm wearing some smoked glasses, so I will give it one full feeder of oats and half a pack of cigars. And I give this book 13 out of 12 chromatic pitches on a poorly tuned electric guitar. So, Justin, get to do the bit. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've got the page pulled up because uh, book 17 out of 40 of Discworld, Interesting Times. Oh, oh no. no. Yeah, it's a Rincewind book. Cover. Oh, I'm sorry. no. Uh, may you live in interesting times is the worst thing one can wish on a citizen of Discworld, especially on the distinctly unmagical sorcerer Rincewind. Um, who has had far too much perilous excitement in his life. But when a request for a great wizard arrives in Ankhmar Pork very, via carrier albatross from the faraway counterweight continent, it is he who is sent as emissary. Chaos threatens to follow the impending demise of the Agadian Empire's current ruler, and for some incomprehensible reason, someone believes Rincewind can will have a mythic role in the war, and wholesale bloodletting that will surely ensue. Carnage is pretty much a given, since Cohen the Barbarian and its extremely elderly Silver Horde are busily formulating their own plan for looting, pillaging, and er, looking wistfully at girls. However, Rincewind firmly believes there are too many heroes already in the world, yet only one Rincewind, and he owes it to the world to keep that one alive for as long as possible. I guess we're doing this. Not just a Rincewind book, a pastiche of a foreign nation book. Mm-hmm. Yep. I not am. showing up for that episode. <laughs> You're lucky. You can punch out whatever you want. The Complete Discography is an independent production by four people who just really like these books. All opinions expressed during the show are our own. All quotes from primary or related works are used under the Fair Use Doctrine and remain copyrighted by their original owners. The music from this podcast is sourced from Incompetech. That info can be found in the show notes. The rest of it is distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it. Please share it. But say where you got it, don't make money off it, and don't change it. Connect with the show at Pod, which is A-T-U-I-N underscore P-O-D. 
or email us at atuan.pod at gmail.com. 